Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. All right, everyone, I've got Batu Arasoy on the show. Batu is a research manager for vision technologies and solutions at Siemens Corporate Technology. Batu, welcome to This Week in Machine Learning and AI. Sure, it's great to be here. Uh, It's great to have you on the show, and I'm looking forward to this conversation. Why don't we start with having you share a little bit about your background and how you came to work in computer vision and machine learning? Sure. Um, So actually, I started my uh, education and career in the field of electrical and computer engineering with a focus on computer vision topics uh, in Turkey. And after finishing up my uh, Bachelor of Science there, uh, I joined CMU and started working on computational geometric problems such as 3D reconstruction from point class and geometrical shape matching. And at that point, uh, deep learning was uh, taking off uh, every day. And at that point, we were mostly using the traditional machine learning algorithms, and that's how my interest started. Uh, At that time, we were always using okay, uh, can we extract some hand-carved features in order to represent the geometries? But then we realized that there might be a better way of doing this. And that's how I started this machine learning journey. After I received my PhD in computational geometry at CMU, uh, I joined CMAS Corporate Technology and I started integrating artificial intelligence and computational geometry together. And right now I'm technology manager for vision technologies and solutions team in CMAS Corporate Technology, which is actually R&D hub for CMAS. And we are providing high quality research development and consulting services for our business units within the CMAS. Okay, you mentioned that uh, a big part of your focus is kind of merging, uh, did I interpret this right? Kind of merging the traditional computational geometry approaches and deep learning. Is, Is that how you're approaching the various problems you're working on? That's correct. That's one uh, facade of our approach. Um, But basically, uh, our team is known as the computer vision with limited data uh, problem. So our team is working on how to solve computer vision problems by leveraging some simulation methods to generate synthetic data or by developing intelligent AI algorithms to eliminate the need of large amount of training data set collection. Because you might be seeing in most of the domains that this is one of the obstacles to actually deploy AI systems in industry. You have to collect a large amount of training data sets for a specific custom task that's for your interest. But at the same time, after collecting this data, you also have to annotate this data. So we are working closely with academia and researchers within Siemens to tackle this problem from multiple angles, how to solve learning or computer vision with limited data problem. Is your use of simulation primarily focused on uh, synthetic data or are you using simulation in other ways as well? So uh, we use simulation in two different ways. The first way of we use the simulation is actually to generate synthetic data. And uh, one great example uh, use case that we have, do- have developed in the past is about spare part recognition. This is a problem if you have a mechanical object uh, that you deployed in the field and you need to perform maintenance and service operations on this mechanical uh, functional object over time. In order to solve this problem, uh, what we are working on is uh, using simulation to synthetically generate a training data set 
for object recognition for large amount of entities. In other words, we synthetically generate images as if these images are collected in real world from an expert and they're annotated from an expert. And this actually comes for free using the simulation. Um, we have developed a system uh, together with our CMAS colleagues where we deployed this for the maintenance applications of the trains. And the main goal is a service engineer goes to the field, he takes his tablet, he takes the pictures, then he draws a rectangle box and the system automatically identifies what is the object of interest that the service engineer would like to replace. And in order to make the system reliable, we have to take into consideration different lightning conditions, uh, texture, colors, or whatever these parts can look like mm. in a real world environment. Okay, so you, you've got some ground truth data, which is the parts itself, you know, from, you know, these could be, I'm imagining you have them both from a, like maybe catalog images perspective, but for some of them, you probably have down to CAD uh, description of these parts and you want the service engineer to be able to take a picture of the parts in place, like not having, you know, taking the part out and putting it on a white background or something like that, but just in place and then draw a bounding box of some sort around it and you, your system should be able to identify what the part in question is. That's exactly the case. So we are interested for the built-in case. So we would like to eliminate the need of this assembling any mechanical object mm -hmm. in order to identify the object of interest because sometimes people might have already engraved some QR codes on these parts. However, we are targeting the application scenario where this object will take so much time to disassemble mm -hmm. or the QR code is not visible or due to some customer preferences, we cannot print any QR code and ID tags on this part. Our system is designed to be able to work on such uh, scenarios. I can see how generating synthetic data, particularly your kind of typical data augmentation types of synthetic data where you're doing uh, shifts and changing the lighting conditions and things like that would help a model solve this problem. But you also have, uh, I would imagine the issue of kind of occlusion of your part is a big challenge to overcome. Is that dealt with via synthetic data or other methods? So that's a great question, actually. Uh, yes, so that was actually the first step that we took was data augmentation methods to be able to actually uh, use some previous catalog images or CAD models to generate synthetic images. However, the real challenge is modeling also the sensor structure. So what are these uh, sensor noise that you are going to get when you are in the field? Because if you synthetically generate uh, images, you don't consider the noise that comes from your acquisition device, or you don't consider the distortion that comes from your acquisition device or some other electromagnetic field effect. And this is where uh, we published a paper uh, in 2016 that's called Depth Synth, and where we modeled with very high detail how a depth sensor works, such that our simulator generates very high detail depth images from the CAD model renderings. So that's what it makes it really successful. We are not only generating uh, or augmenting data by creating its different scales, different rotations, but even we take into account the parameters that affects the image acquisition. And that way we're able to achieve uh, success to deploy such a system in real world applications.
And so does the depth characteristic address the occlusion of your part by other parts in assembly or uh, is yes. How do those two factors tie together? Sure, sure. Actually, uh, when we synthetically render these images, we render the entire assembly so that even though we see the objects uh, itself, uh, we synthetically simulate as if there are occlusions from the neighboring parts. So our synthetic database does not only consist of clean images. We also take into account uh, all these cases where you synthetically simulate uh, these corner cases as well. So this is all uh, baked into the simulation platform that we have. I'm curious with the depth synth paper, what the general approach was. Were you, you know, how did you incorporate the characteristics of the sensor into the training of the models to get better results? Sure, sure. Um, for example, uh, in our paper, we talk about the representation of the depth synth pipeline, which consists of the projector modeling, camera modeling object modeling and reconstruction and post-processing modules. And each of these modules takes as input a CAD model and synthetically generates a rendering of a depth image corresponding to this CAD model. And during the projector modeling, for example, we simulate the patterns motion between exposures, projector and lens effects. In the camera modeling, we take into account distortion, motion blur, and other noises that are coming from the environment. And in the object modeling, we take into account motion control, illumination, material properties, and also even the surface microgeometry modeling properties. And at the end of the day, we even apply how this geometry or how this image will look like if our device is applying some post-processing steps like the summoning or hole filling. And that's how we actually get depth images that looks really realistic. And in our paper, we showed the comparison uh, our simulation results with the real uh, data acquisition. And uh, we even simulate uh, what if somebody is using a handheld device and he walks within the building, we take into account the vibration that comes from walking you know, within the environment or the, ex the motion between the exposures as well. And that's makes it really strong. And so are the, the modules that you described you know, are these modules steps in a pipeline or are they more like layers in a, a deep learning model? So for this one, uh, this is not based on the deep learning uh, model, okay. uh, but uh, right now uh, this is still an end-to-end -end pipeline. But uh, d during that time, uh, we actually modeled this uh, mathematically, these behaviors. Cool. So we, we dove right into a pretty detailed uh, use case, but maybe before we talk about more use cases, I can have you take a step back and uh, talk a little bit more broadly about what your group at Siemens does. Sure, sure. Uh, in our group, actually, every day we have three different type of interactions or activities. And uh, in our group, as I mentioned before, we are targeting the computer vision with limited data problem. However, what are the uh, different venues where we actually execute this work. And this can be grouped in under the three different project categories or activities. Our first activity involves day-to-day uh, -day interaction with our business units, uh, CMAS business units to understand their needs and try to identify which 
computer vision research topics can make the largest business impact for them. After identifying such opportunities, we formulate proof of concept projects with our, uh, with them to improve their competitive advantage. But uh, this is one type of the interaction that we have within the company for our scientists. The second type of interaction that also excites many of our scientists here is the our interaction for more fundamental research topics. We are very actively engaged with subsidies and grants in USA. We screen potential call for proposal issued by US government entities that align with our long-term vision. And if there is anything relevant for us, we collaborate with multiple universities and industrial partners to draft white papers and full proposals. And a great example of such activity was right now we are one of the performance uh, within DARPA physics of AI project together with Cornell Prof, uh, University. And we are also part of the DARPA automatic scientific knowledge extraction project program as well. Uh, this actually concludes our second type of activities. And the third type of activities is more about uh, how can our researchers and scientists work on the topics that are going to create a business impact in the next two, three years for Siemens. For these topics, our teams are collaborating with universities and other industrial partners to innovate and publish research results in top conferences. For example, last year, our team had three CVPR, one ECCV publication and presentation. And this year we had one CVPR publication and we also organized a computer vision with bias data workshop uh, led by our principal scientist, Dr. Jan Ernst, and with our team member, Dr. Quantron Pank uh, in Long Beach, California last week. Okay. And what was your CVPR paper uh, this time? Sure. This time uh, it was actually on a very, very interesting topic, uh, what we called uh, learning without memorizing. So um, this project is also uh, uh, is an important incremental learning is an important task aimed at increasing the capability of a trained model in terms of the number of classes recognizable by the model. So what it means is, is the key problem is the requirement of storing the training data associated with existing classes while teaching the classifier to learn new classes. And this is a work jointly done by Rajat Vikram Singh and Kwan Chuan Peng. And what they actually invented is they found out, they find out a way of uh, emulating the relationship between a student and the teacher, uh, how it works in real world, and they applied it to artificial intelligence. So the way the system works is uh, there is one teacher model which tries to explain what it learned so far, but it doesn't want the student to just learn everything by heart. It wants the student to understand why he makes these decisions. And that way, if you're actually capable of teaching the neural network how a neural network makes decision, then you can actually pass the inherited information from the previous experiences without requiring access to the previous data sets. Are there maybe correlations between the student-teacher type of an approach and something like uh, an autoencoder where you're kind of trying to map what the primary model learns into some lower dimensional space and then uh, kind of build that back out? Um, yes, it's, it's similar because actually this work is uh, built upon uh, one of our previous publications, which was, which was trying to do attention modeling. And attention modeling is actually trying to understand where does our neural network pay most of the attention 
when it makes a decision. And we are capable of highlighting, oh, okay, these are the set of the pixels uh, that contributes to the most of the decision. And uh, this is the paper that we published last year. It's called the Tell Me Where to Look. Uh, and in this paper, by leveraging uh, this powerful explanation mechanism, we are able to encapsulate knowledge that's very unique uh, from the training data set in a lower dimensional representation step state. And that's how it works actually. That's why it's also relevant to the autoencoder, but we are using another mechanism to actually encapsulate the knowledge coming from the training data sets. Okay. Uh, and so how, how does that, uh, that mechanism work uh, in the, uh, the learning without memorizing paper? Sure. Uh, the way this work uh, works is actually, uh, first of all, what's the uh, real use case? The real use case is um, you might be familiar with all these edge devices where we are capable of performing real-time computer vision tasks on them. Mm -hmm. And uh, if you would like to improve the improve your model, for example, you like to train or teach this model classification or recognition of the new objects, you don't want to retrain your system uh, using the previous training data set. First, it takes too much time again. Second, you might be uh, not have a connectivity or you might not have access to this data. And there's also memory limitations on your edge device, which prevents you to actually store this data on your device for further training purposes. So the main idea is, can we encapsulate the knowledge that was already inherited from a previous training stage and pass it to the next stage of the training? And the way the algorithm works is, it tries to memorize, uh, actually we call it learning without memorization, but we, it tries to always consistently pay attention to the same regions of the image pixels to make the decision. So it doesn't allow its attention mechanism to divert too much by looking at the new observed data. So that way, by keeping our attention consistent, we are preventing our attention to be hurt or disturbed. And by preventing that, we are capable of actually maintaining the data as much as possible. Of course, this is something at research stage and we are working on it uh, further uh, for more uh, industrial use cases. Going back to the tell me where to look paper, what's the key innovation there? So the key innovation there was, it was a very interesting paper because um, I don't know if you are familiar with the attention modeling uh, frameworks, but what they are trying to do is, um, the, the famous example is you like to uh, recognize a ship and in your training data set, you always have the ships that are on the sea. Then you like to see, okay, let show me the what are the pixels that my neural network is paying attention. And you realize that, oh, my neural network is paying attention to the sea because it's actually learning the patterns of the sea instead of the geometrical features of a ship. Mm -hmm. So and existing algorithms until our development, uh, the attention models were not uh, extracting the boundaries of the object of interest, they were more noisy uh, compared to the uh, our uh, recent development. What we did that work was, uh, we demonstrated that we can actually mask or hide 
some pixels of the objects or uh, some pixels of the image. And then we send back this information, this masked or altered image back to the classifier until it's not capable of recognizing it any of the correct classes. That way in an iterative fashion, we remove more pixels from the images until our classifier starts failing to making the right decision. And at that moment say that, okay, we are successfully recovered all the set of pixels, which impacts the decision of making this is a cat, this is a ship, or etc. This is the one uh, branch of our work. The second branch of work. And so, was, if I can okay. jump in there, are the, sure, the sure. masking is done as part of the process. It's not uh, like a labeling type of a step. Is that correct? That's, it's, that's correct. It was It's what completely trained end to end, where the system optimizes uh, jointly trying to identify where to pay attention pixels and at the same time uh, remove some pixels to see if it needs to grow these pixels uh, over time. And this way it actually corrects and improves its attention mechanism. And we realized that we were able to get much more accurate boundaries of the attention and they were much more uh, clustered together such that they are more compact representation of the knowledge. And it also provides explainability aspect. Okay. And I, and I think uh, at least some folks in our audience will be familiar with the Lime paper, uh, which is uh, Carlos Gestrin and his folks from the University of Washington. And they do something similar where they kind of perturb aspects of the input to determine which are the uh, pixels that are most relevant to the classifier decision. Can you relate uh, this work to, to that? Um, sure. From a from a higher level, uh, we are trying to solve a similar problem, um, but I don't know the exact details of that paper. So that's why I won't be comfortable to directly compare them to here. Cool. And then you mentioned a computer vision with bias data workshop that you did at CVPR uh, this year. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes, uh, and actually this was the uh, second uh, series of this workshop organized by uh, our principal scientist, Jan Ernst. And actually the main uh, objective of this workshop was bringing together people from industry, academia, and also uh, students as well uh, to identify what are the big problems right now in the uh, computer vision with limited and biased data. And one, one uh, famous example is like, uh, if you have a training database, you always have a class imbalance problem. You always have so many data points of the nice results, but you don't have enough number of samples uh, of the negative samples or the problematic cases or out of distribution uh, cases or the unique rare cases. Mm -hmm. So we had the uh, list of speakers uh, and uh, you can also find it online, the list of speakers from the website, uh, CVPR 2019 workshop uh, website. And we discussed together uh, what are the some common problems that the academia and industry is facing right now? And what are the some uh, approaches that academia and industry have tried so far to tackle this problem? Uh, that was the main objective of the workshop. Uh, now these kind of class imbalance problems that you've described, they come up all over the place, but they are particularly present in what I imagine are pretty common use cases for you at Siemens, like industrial inspection, where you're trying to identify damaged parts or, um, 
you know, damaged products coming off of a, an inspection line or maybe looking for uh, damage on uh, uh, wind turbine rotors, things like that. Like you, you've got so many pictures of the, you know, the, the good parts uh, and very few pictures of the different types of, uh, of damaged uh, parts. What are some of the key ways that you're able to deal with this? Sure. Actually, um, some some people call this problem out of distribution learning. Some people call it novelty detection or anomaly detection as well. And yes, you're right, because it's always easy to say, okay, this is something uh, normal looking versus this is something defective. But there might be a hundred different ways this defect might look like, right? Mm-hmm. So, and if you'd like to try to annotate all this uh, together, uh, it might take too much time and you might not even uh, able to cover entire uh, problem space. So for this one, uh, we are working some animal detection algorithms uh, in order to learn uh, representations, uh, similar approaches, what you mentioned previously using autoencoders, such that you learn visual trends and then being able to identify, okay, if this is how a normal scene looks like, how can we identify this sample does not fit to this distribution, uh, the data that we learned from, and that's labeled as the normal. And this is uh, a very, very powerful uh, technology if you can scale it uh, different uh, use cases as well. So what are some of the most interesting you know, either use cases or case studies that you've had a chance to work on at, at Siemens? You know, what's most exciting of the various applications of computer vision there? Sure. Uh, and actually, this is a very hot area, uh, the computer vision, and we always try to uh, do research that's grounded to the uh, industrial needs and business needs. And uh, we usually take uh, approaches together with government as well. And we are one of the performers in um, in one of the programs uh, by Office of Naval Research, and this is called the um, Activity Recognition Project. Uh, where we are trying to develop a system, uh, the user will interact uh, with an AI system where the user will tell, okay, I'm looking for an object and the user will be able to define this object. Okay, it's going to have red shirt. It's going to have um, blonde hair or it's gonna say short, tall, these attributes, or I'm looking for a white car or et cetera. Then the system automatically filters out or distills millions of video images or millions of the videos uh, in order to identify and locate your object of interest that you defined. But the nice thing and interesting thing is this is a problem uh, that's actually two way where we believe, and this is very exciting, we call this human in the loop. Idea. So what we believe is you or the user can provide all this information uh, to the system, but we don't want AI system to just return, okay, these are the results. We want AI system to come back and counter back saying that, did you mean by this? And such that they are going to have a conversation between the user and the AI system until they actually filter out and locate the object of interest. Because sometimes we also observe that people are not good at it by describing uh, what they're looking for, and the system might be able to uh, correct it saying that, did you mean by that this? And we are trying to actually map human input to the visual search queries and having a conversation between these two agents. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm envisioning a lot of moving parts here between 
the natural language elements of it and the visual querying and the choosing the right examples to maximize information transfer between the humans and the computer. What are the different elements of uh, solving a problem like that? Sure. And actually, that's uh, what makes CMAS really unique because um, CMAS Corporate Technology is a research uh, R&D hub uh, for CMAS. And uh, we are actively investing in research and development in the domain of artificial intelligence. And there are multiple teams contributing all over the world with diverse backgrounds. And as you have seen here, this problem requires a natural language processing background. This requires computer vision background. This problem requires also uh, the as person identification or this kind of application backgrounds. So that's why uh, the main uh, team consists of multiple subgroups. And uh, one of the team is focusing on identifying uh, attributes uh, from multi-camera streams so that uh, actually you need to still train the systems on uh, some training data sets such that you can learn, okay, what does it mean really having a red car? What does it mean really having a blue car? So the first part of the computer vision element is being able to identify the objects and then being able to identify the features of these objects. Afterwards, after you identify this, and you are capable of actually now processing the human uh, input where uh, the user says, I'm looking for, after you see that sentence, you look for the verbs and the nouns and our natural language processing experts are working on how to relate the user queries to the mathematical queries in order to actually find the objects of interest that are found by this computer vision uh, modules. Afterwards, of course, there's another team, which is the user interaction team, which is focusing on, okay, what is the information uh, exchange efficiency? So are we actually going to be able to find a solution if you go down to this route? Or should the system come back and ask the user, oh, did you mean by this? Or such that it actually improved the uh, quality of the search results. And along the lines of, of kind of government projects, you mentioned earlier, a DARPA physics of AI project. And I, I uh, wanted to ask you a little bit about that. Uh, what's that project about? So DARPA physics of AI uh, is a program where multiple uh, university partners are uh, contributing. And um, we have our uh, team member, Dr. Uh, Tichun Chang is the PI for that project. And this project is actually trying to incorporate uh, physics into the artificial intelligence systems in order to eliminate the need of large training data sets. And as I explained at the beginning of my uh, discussion, so this is really what excites us, learning with limited data. And whenever there is such a program, we try our best to be part of it. And here we are working with the uh, Cornell University. Uh, and actually uh, this project is trying to reconstruct uh, 3D images uh, from uh, subsampled uh, resolution uh, sensor data, where they know some physics constraints, but they don't know the they don't have the full visibility to the data for reconstruction, and they are focusing on how to incorporate the physics in order to be able to reconstruct 3D by knowing the uh, relationship within the elements in this data and etc. Okay, yeah, I find this general direction of research to be really interesting um, in that, you know, we, we're kind of coming from a history of, you know, building systems based on um, 
you know, very robust models of the physical world. And then we, the pendulum kind of swung to, you know, let's throw away all the physics and just use statistical models, you know, from, you know, just building up from data. And, you know, I find that there's a lot of interesting work happening in the middle now, kind of the pendulum's kind of swung into the middle where we're trying to integrate these two and uh, attach the, you know, the physical knowledge of the world uh, or the, the way whatever system that we're modeling works with uh, the statistical information or statistical modeling techniques. There are a bunch of really interesting applications there. Yes, and actually one uh, everyday example that I use is like, uh, you don't need to uh, observe thousand times a car is driving on the road in order to understand a regular car does not fly. So if you can integrate <laughs> some, if you can integrate some knowledge about okay, there's gravity, uh, there are roads, and etc., uh, you you won't need that much data. That's that's something that excites us, and uh, we definitely uh, interested in this type of topics. You know, I was at the. Siemens Spotlight uh, on Innovation event not too long ago, and uh, one of the use cases that or application areas that I saw Siemens talking quite a bit about was uh, smart cities uh, and a lot of kind of a broad, a much broader array of applications than I usually see when smart cities comes up. Um, is that an area that your group works in? Um, not at the moment, but we believe the technology that we develop can be applied there as well. You also mentioned a project uh, automating scientific knowledge extraction. Uh, what's that one about? Sure. Um, that's a project that we are collaborating with um, our sister group uh, here in Siemens City. And actually, uh, that's uh, the PI is the Dr. Yanis. And actually, uh, what we are trying to in that project is uh, it's another DARPA effort. And the objective is if you have list of papers, how can you make sure that the knowledge that extracted from these papers corresponds to the code that you actually get delivered at the end of the day? Or how can you make sure that you can automatically understand what is actually explained in this paper um, by looking at the images, the text, and making its relationship to the, uh, the software. And our team is contributing to the recognition of and decomposition of the uh, neural network images on these papers. And uh, these papers are uh, mostly uh, scientific papers where you have the multiple layers and actually uh, we are working on developing a system that's capable of taking as input such a scientific paper and then uh, process the images on these papers and tell you, okay, this paper is leveraging a neural network architecture X with this many layers and they are using this dropout and this pooling layer and etc. So we are working on that component to be able to automatically screen uh, such scientific knowledge papers and try to summarize the content and knowledge in them. My sense is that a lot of people who are listening to this podcast will probably be really interested in uh, a system like that, you know, particularly with all of the papers that are uh, they come out in our space uh, and that are published to archive, uh, it's super difficult to keep up with, uh, you know, even a subset uh, of those papers. 
Yes, that's true. Uh, but of course, now we are at the resource stage of this uh, algorithm. <laughs> uh, in, the, in the future, uh, we are going to see hopefully uh, more and more uh, examples of such work. Because right now, if I remember correctly, in, in CVPR, there were 9,300 attendees and over 1,000 different papers. And right now, if you spend three or four days, it really takes too much time to even figure out what are the papers that you'd like to attend and visit. Uh-huh. So such a solution would be even good if it can actually screen what are the titles and then does it really fit my interest and then I can go there. You know, it's kind of towards the basic research side of the spectrum, you know, at least relative to what some other corporate research arms are doing. What is the, how do you ensure that this stuff is tied into and aligned with the, the actual stuff that Siemens is, is doing? And, you know, for that matter, how important, uh, you've mentioned that that's important to you, but, you know, how do you strike a balance between contributing in these broader efforts and collaborations and, you know, doing things that ultimately has uh, an impact on the kind of stuff that Siemens cares about. Sure. And actually, uh, with government uh, and also other research projects, we are more tackling the lower TRL uh, projects, which means the lower technology readiness levels, where we develop some proof of concept and uh, we publish some papers. Of course, we secure the IP. And that's the one of the important uh, metrics for us, how, uh, my, how many new ideas or IPs can be actually contribute to our CMS business units to um, increase their competitive advantages. Uh, From a grounding perspective, any topic that we invest, uh, we always first think about, does it really relate to a problem that we have in-house or does it really have some uh, potential to be converted into a product in the future? And that's always our grounding mechanism. And our team is uh, working all these papers that we publish, even though they sound on their cool research projects, they all get into the real world uh, it's as one component of a product that you experience in the world. And actually the spare part recognition uh, algorithm that I discussed uh, at the beginning of our interview, that's actually called Easy Spare Idea. Uh, if you go online and Google it, you can see it. That's actually a product that our business units right now uh, actually uh, leveraging and providing this service. So that's how uh, the transit technology transition happens. First, we actually uh, perform the research uh, internally and in collaboration with the academicians. And then our job is transferring this research to relevant products. But we always keep in mind that whatever we do needs to provide some impact, hopefully, in the next two years for CMS overall. When you're taking a, an idea like this at the you know later stages of this process, like the easy spares, are there unique challenges that you run into kind of in those final steps of commercialization? Always. Uh, and that's why we always uh, have support from other experts uh, from our business units who are really uh, know uh, how to productize something. And um, we, we definitely experience some challenges. Like um, one of the challenges is uh, with the neural networks, uh, the memory or the processing times. So uh, we experience such challenges uh, during at the end of the proof of concept phase before demonstrating it to our uh, business units. 
Uh, well, Batu, thank you so much for taking the time to share a bit of what you're up to. Sounds like a lot of really interesting stuff. Um, and I'm imagining that some folks will be interested in digging into some of the recent CV, CVPR papers that you'll be sharing with us. Yes, thank you very much for your time as well. Uh, and I, I would like to also point out that in case if there are any other additional questions, your audience is uh, free to reach me out. And I think you can also post my email, your website, so that I would be happy to connect with them afterwards. Uh, we'll include it in the show notes. Thanks, Batu. Thank you. All right, everyone, that's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.